This episode is sponsored by Darktrace, the world's leading AI company for cyber defense and creator of autonomous response technology. From subtle insider threats to machine speed ransomware, cyber attacks will inflict more than $1 trillion in damages during this year alone, wreaking havoc before security teams have time to investigate. By using artificial intelligence, Darktrace learns while on the job to distinguish friend from foe, and when it senses an attack, the AI fights back against the bad guys within two seconds. It's time to supercharge your security stack. Start a free trial at www.darktrace.com trial. Welcome to our second episode in Ars Technica's podcast miniseries on emerging uses of artificial intelligence. I'm Sean Gallagher, Ars IT editor, and this time we'll be diving into one of the holy grails of information security, catching insider threats. There have been a number of recent high-profile cases where people within organizations used their access to data for self-enrichment or ill intent, and have slipped past the usual policies and tools that are collectively referred to as data loss prevention. Most of the time, employees are long gone before their data theft is noticed, if ever, and preventing data loss almost requires a minority report level of precognition. To get some insight into how AI could play a role in detecting insider threats, Lee Hutchison and I spoke with Kathleen Carley, Director of the Center for Computational Analysis of Social and Organizational Systems at Carnegie Mellon University. So now joining us is Kathleen Carley. She is the Director for the Center for Computational Analysis of Social and Organizational Systems, or CASOS, at Carnegie Mellon University. And she's also a Professor of Computer Science at the University. Thanks for joining us, Kathleen. You're welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. So can you tell us a little bit about what CASOS does? So sure, it's a university-wide center that is focused on applying social network analysis techniques, machine learning, and agent-based modeling to solving real-world social problems, everything ranging from insider threat to counterterrorism to information diffusion. Oh, that's really interesting. So can you tell us a bit about the insider threat research you've done? Insider threat, first off, is very difficult to study because, you know, mostly you only have data about who actually was an insider. And so we were trying to come up with this machine learning approach to be able to discriminate early on whether someone was even in the process of becoming an insider threat. And what we found was that, in general, the psychological and financial factors, although sometimes there for different people, were not consistently the same for, across everyone. And that the family issues and the health issues were not consistently the same. The things that were consistently the same were they had to, of course, have access to the information. They had to have the opportunity to access it basically when they were alone. And they also had what we called high social betweenness. And what high social betweenness is, is it's a network characteristic of people that says you're connecting people who otherwise would not be connected. In their case, there was a very, it was very, very special what was happening. Imagine, you know, in your own life, you have people in your, who you talk to who include members of your family. They include people that you work with. They include your friends. And for most of us, some of our friends know some of the members of our family. Some of our family know some of the people we work with. Some of the people we work with know some of our friends. And they're, you know, we really have this kind of circle around us, almost like a support group of all these interacting people. But what was happening with these insiders is as they got closer and closer to the event, they started dropping connections and they did not introduce their family members to people at work or to their friends. They did not have their friends interact with the people at work. So they would maybe be connected to only one member of their family now. And, you know, only a couple people at work and only a couple of friends. And those people didn't even know each other. In this way, they were the only person who was connecting these people. And that was critical because it allowed them to operate without any kind of oversight. So what role does uh, using machine learning or artificial intelligence play in being able to detect that? It, it sounds like that's one of those things where you have to basically plug into 
factors that are outside of the normal range of data you'd collect on people? Well, yes and no. <laughs> um, in this case, we were fortunate because we had data sets that actually had uh, some information on who was you know, communicating with whom. We had their email. Right. And so we were able to actually run machine learning on that. And we augmented that data with other information on their psychological characteristics, home characteristics, health, et cetera. And then we basically tried out you know, simple machine learning models where we thought we knew what the factors were, only to find they just weren't very good. And then we just ran some great big ones to discover all the different kind of uh, variables that together made sense. And from that, we looked at the models that resulted and we're able to see that it was this, not only this between us, but the change toward it, as well as the opportunity I mentioned. So in terms of the real world implications of this, did you learn anything that could be applied to monitoring network behavior of people in a workplace that would predict their tendency to be an insider threat? In terms of being able to predict it, I would say that we're still far from a perfect prediction scenario because most of our data is based, like I said, is only, we only know people who really did engage. We don't know people who almost did and then turned away. And we certainly know that a lot of people who don't ever engage might have similar characteristics. And that's one of the things that needs you know, more basic research from a prediction point standpoint. However, while I can't say that if you start looking like this, you are definitely going to engage in insider threat. I can say that if you look like this, chances are you're very unhappy and disgruntled and that there might be interventions that could actually help you be healthier and happier. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, there's there's all sorts of applications for making people healthier and happier if you can detect that they're not happy. But uh, also there's some level of minority report here as well, I think. Well, I would not use this to go and say they're definitely going to engage in this kind of an activity. The other thing I would say is that this actually suggests ways of organizing work so to just make it just less likely, right? So remember, the other part of this was they had to have the opportunity and, you know, be alone with the data. So if, in fact, people are never alone with sensitive data, then that is itself a kind of preventive measure. So as you were, as you were conducting this research, uh, did you say that you were looking at insider threat behavior that involved sort of the exfiltration of company proprietary data for purposes of industrial espionage? Or did you look at that plus also more broader activities, more different insider kinds of threats? So we looked at both. We looked at both more industrial espionage as well as national espionage. And we also looked at accidental um, accidental insider threats. Could you elaborate a little bit? I'm curious about what an accidental insider threat means in this specific context. So in this particular context, what we were looking at is individuals who had access to sensitive information, like sensitive corporate information, and were using a computer system and may have done something like put it in Google Groups or sent it through an email without thinking about the fact that that wasn't a closed system. So they did, you know, like they forgot to turn on, uh, you know, certain passwords or something. Okay, so that's more of a data exposure issue. Exactly, and there's a variety of ways of doing that. We use machine learning to model the human process of response and the human how humans would learn to behave in those organizations, then put that into a simulation model. So we have lots of little machine learning models of people running around inside an agent-based simulation. And our model basically suggested that, you know, no matter how well you try to train people, these kind of accidental events were always going to happen. They were just not preventable, totally. And you mentioned you looked at both industrial and national type scenarios. Is there a behavior model difference between the two types of insider threats? Is it, I mean, it seems like there's a, a different culture for security in the industrial space and in the government and military space. So 
I would assume that they would have different motivations as well in the cases where it was intentional disclosure. So we did not, we did not build a simulation model of intentional disclosure, okay. just of the unintentional. Okay. And uh, in terms of the machine learning models, our strongest ones were on the corporate world, just because there's so much more data. Right. So the other one we basically right. used for confirmation to see to what extent it kind of fit with the real data. Okay. But there were similar results when you're looking at both industrial espionage and also like like espionage, espionage, right? Yeah, and we found that individual motivation was so highly varied in both settings that it wasn't in and of itself the predictive factor. Right. That, That's that, really interesting. Yeah, well, that makes sense. I mean, in terms of, so, I mean, I can think of the cases I've covered, such as the recent cases at the National Security Agency where people brought home things with them, for example. And in one case, it was maybe psychologically associated. And another, it was someone trying to essentially brush up at home on things so they could advance their career before they retired. Exactly. So there's just a lot of motivations. So is there a way to sort of, I guess, is there a way to package and commoditize the, the methodology of insider threat detection that you specifically are working on? Is there a way for, you know, if, if a company wanted to begin implementing, you know, some sort of, I don't want to use the phrase predictive analytics for insider threats, but I guess I'm going to. If a company were going to do that, um, do you have a, do you have recommendations that they could take forward like today? Well, one recommendation is to always work in terms of teams. Another one is that if they are going to monitor interaction, then there's a whole set of different measures they can use to easily identify when an individual is dropping interactive ties with others and starting to be too isolated. So I would say look out for people who start becoming isolated. Look out for people who are not uh, engaged in, you know, kind of friendly team behavior. Organize yourself such that you always work in pairs, at least, you know, engage in social interactions within your group so that you build triplets of people who work, who all know each other. And the reason for a triplet as opposed to just having a buddy system is because if I loan you money, you may or may not pay me back. But if I loan you money and you're friends with Joe and Joe's a friend of mine also, you're definitely going to pay me back because otherwise Joe will know. So triplets, you know, organizing in terms of triplets is very, very important for any kind of system where you want norms to develop naturally to support your mission. You know, I like I, I like the, these recommendations as someone who tries to be as privacy conscious as it's possible to be. Right. I mean, the, the, I was going to add to that that, you know, obviously there, there are some workplaces, especially like in, in national security environments where you have to surrender a certain level of privacy to work with that environment. But there are obvious boundaries in the corporate world to how much you can, uh, how, how much is ethical to surveil your employees. No, absolutely. And the other thing is, if we were to go completely that route, we don't know yet how fragile the machine learning tools are for doing this. I mean, we know we can trick a lot of machine learning tools very, very easily, but we don't know for the, the ones particularly for finding an insider threat that I, we can imagine deploying, we don't know how fragile they right. are. Right, so if somebody understood the rules being, okay, I need to maintain social networks, I need to maintain contacts with people to give the, the illusion of not being isolated. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. Right. Plus, I mean, again, as, as you stated, this the, the algorithms that are being used, the machine learning tools may or may not be particularly fragile in ways that are, I guess, unknown. Correct. And I also think that this is an area where kind of a human machine teaming approach that involves really developing culture is very critical because the way in which you act as an insider now is so much more associated with the technology you use. You need to develop not only trust with the other members of your team, you'd have to develop trust with the other members of your team who aren't human. And so I think this is really one of those areas where developing organizational norms and culture are going to be absolutely critical. 
Is there any particular area you think we're missing uh, here that you would like to put out there as far as what you've seen in your research around these types of behaviors? So I think there's another side that we were seeing in some of the behavior that is that is growing different, and we definitely need to look and explore this more, and that is uh, the recruitment angle. So if I know that someone is vulnerable, I can now use various kinds of phishing and technology approaches to actually go and recruit people, right? So I think the other part of this is trying to get smarter about recognizing and stopping these kind of phishing campaigns. What it sounds like you're saying dovetails very, very closely with how a foreign agent might look to recruit, uh, you know, vulnerable employees in the United States who might be willing to give up secrets in exchange for whatever it is they might be looking for. You know, some, some foreign agents are after money, some are after a human connection to be listened to. They're, you know, the motivations are, are legion. Um, but it sounds like we're sort of talking about the same kind of things when it comes to identifying, you know, who might be vulnerable as an insider threat and who might be co-optable. Yes, I think that's right. And so I, that's why I'm saying that another approach here uh, that you need to do in addition is trying to help people understand when they're starting to be co-opted. Try to help them understand that they might be being recruited. Yeah, and, and, and unfortunately, it seems like most of the time that we do things like that, it tends to be punitive in terms of sort of like trying to sting people. I know that some of the things that I've seen recently in this area as far as looking for people who are recruitable tends to be <laughs> an operation to find people who are potential problems and, and get rid of them uh, as employees or, or put them in jail. So I guess the, the problem there is finding a way to do that in a way that's not a law enforcement or security specific driven type of process and make it more of a corporate culture process. Right, and more of a, also just part of a general educational awareness process. You know, I think that we want to move toward, you know, security cultures. And I think that in those, a big aspect of it is improved critical thinking, improved training individuals on how do you know that you're under surveillance? How do you know you're under attack? How do you know you're being recruited? You know, how do you know what information to trust? Is the other side of watching for someone who is actually says, I don't care, I'm going to do it anyway, kind of thing. So Right, because one's detection and the other is prevention. Right. And I think that, you know, you, you need to do those, have those integrated together as part of your overall plan. Well, and then it, I was going to follow up. The, the, the other side of that overall plan then is the, is the after action thing. Like, you know, what, it, what after you've identified an insider threat and you've spoken with the person and they've, you know, said that, yeah, you know, that was me, I was going to do that or whatever. What then is the appropriate response? Is it a punitive response? Is it a rehabilitative response? I, I mean, I'm sure it depends on circumstance. But overall, if the result of, of seeking help when you feel you're vulnerable for recruiting, if the, if the result of that is that you are punished for that, then there's no incentive really to seek help. You're going to go ahead and do the bad thing. Exactly. And moreover, if you feel like you're getting punished, it makes you more vulnerable to other recruiting attempts. Yeah, definitely. So from, you know, from other groups. So I would say this is more of an, you should treat it more of as an educational thing. So uh, perhaps a way to think about it is to put this in the context of um, conspiracies. And you might be going like, what? <laughs> um, so it turns out that when people start to get engaged and start to look at a particular conspiracy theory and start kind of moving toward it, there's actually a period where they can be helped to understand that that's really not true, that that's really just a conspiracy theory and it's not based on facts and so on. And at that point, you can pull people away. And one of the ways you can pull people away is you help them understand how things get weirder and weirder and show them all the weird things to look for. On the other hand, if you, they're not pulled away, people who start believing in one conspiracy, you often tend to end up believing in two, three, four, or many different kinds of the conspiracy theories. It's kind of like it escalates or spirals down into an increasingly vulnerable position. And 
I would say that from an insider threat perspective, similar things could, you know, there's a similar kind of cognitive process that could be going on. Well, it's the, you know, the power of hidden knowledge. It's the, the, the feeling of being on the inside and knowing that you know something that the rest of the world doesn't know. That's, that's I guess, the appeal of, of buying into theories like this is it places you within the privileged in-group of knowing these things that all of the sheep don't know or, you know, whatever. Right. And so then, you know, and it's like introducing you to one recruiter, then into a different recruiter, and then to a different recruiter. It kind of builds you a network of like-minded people who then mutually reinforce each other uh, and mutually reinforce each other to you. So all of a sudden, you're hearing the same thing over and over again about why you should give all this. It's like we're dangerously close to slipping into a political discussion here. (laughs) I was going to say, this sounds very similar to the way that... Uh, some of the social media information operations work in terms of trying to identify people who are vulnerable to specific types of ideas and then using them to spread disinformation. No, it, I'm, it is basically a very similar process. You know, and as more work becomes telework and more work is online, you know, there's not going to be this strong line between these. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, we're all, where we work, we're all virtual. I'm in my home office here, Sean's in his, uh, you know, and we, we, we communicate a lot through keyboard. Um, and there's the potential, I guess, for that feeling of isolation and social vulnerability to creep in there too. Yes. So now imagine you've got, you know, you've got corporate knowledge that could be taken away. And so you start getting recruited by one individual and then there's several, they introduce you to several others. And really it's just a bot. You just have no way of knowing and you have no way of knowing that all of those different others are all connected to each other. What I would say is create situations where you can encourage the more positive building of connections thing. So, you know, encourage more days where you have, you know, group meetings where you bring members of your family or where you bring in friends with you to work or encourage more, you know, socializ group level socialization or things like that. I guess the other thing I wanted to ask was whether you saw any risk of the same sort of patterns that you picked up in simulation uh, and machine learning being used by an adversary through a machine learning driven system to identify candidates for recruitment. I think that if you if the adversary had the data Yes, they could employ machine learning to identify those who were at risk for recruitment, yes. I would say that it's not the exact same algorithms, but it would be related because the things that we found were both, you know, the opportunity thing and it said that the different motivations were different. What they need to be able to find is that there is a motivation as well as the network factor, as well as the opportunity. So that's why it's a slightly different algorithm. Well, let's hope they let's hope we don't see anything like that. <laughs> well, Kathleen, I think we're just about at the end of our time here. Um, I wanted to thank you for making the time to dial in and, and speak with us. We are very grateful for the opportunity, and um, it's fascinating to hear you discuss it. It's my pleasure, and thanks for having yes, me. Yes, thanks again. There's a battle happening right now for the world's most sensitive data, and cyber criminals are gaining ground. Their sophisticated attacks are scanning for the slightest cracks in the digital perimeter, an employee falling for a phishing email, a cloud application left up without a firewall, or even a smart refrigerator using a default password. Once they get inside, it's only a matter of minutes before your data is encrypted, stolen, or erased entirely. At this point, for most organizations, it's game over. Darktrace has changed that game for thousands of smart cities, international nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies. With the first-ever AI-powered autonomous response technology, Darktrace instantly neutralizes in-progress cyber attacks that are already inside the enterprise, containing the threat without interrupting your normal workflow. Autonomous response is on guard 24-7, on weekends and on holidays, intelligently defending your data on your behalf. The reality is that the next automated attack will strike too fast for humans to mount a defense. But with Darktrace, the machine is fighting back. Find out how on darktrace.com. 
to dig a little deeper into whether AI can really help detect when people are about to walk off or upload their employer's data, we turned to another company that focuses on insider threats from a slightly different perspective. We talked to Rob Junker, Senior Vice President of Research and Development at the data loss prevention software company, Code42. Rob Junker is the Senior Vice President of Product at Code42. Thanks for joining us today, Rob. Thanks for having me, Sean. So I read some information that you recently put out in a study on data exposure that said that in the last 18 months, half the companies that had a data breach cited employees as the cause of the breach. Yep, that's absolutely right. You know, recently we came out with our independent research focused around the data exposure report, really taking a deeper look at data loss protection, if you will. And what we really began to find was some interesting statistics that began to bring some light to um, the risks of employees and the way in which they can either cause data loss leak or theft for that matter, um, and the way in which those are correlated. In fact, what was interesting for us was realizing today that you know 79% of information security leaders believe that employees are an effective front line of defense against data breaches. But what we really found was a lot of data that disputed that notion. So there's been a lot of in the news recently about employees sort of walking off with data. For example, in the case of the Alphabet executive who went to Uber, and also there have been some other cases recently of insiders acting in not necessarily a manner appropriate with being a company employee, such as what happened at AT AT&T recently. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how that sort of behavior emerges from the standpoint of how it can be detected? Because obviously it's one of those things where if you're looking to catch somebody stealing data, you don't start looking for them stealing data the day before they leave a company. Yeah, that's a great point. And maybe um, just to talk high level right now and why this problem has been growing at such a dramatic rate. And as we bring up that that 79% number we were talking about before, there's a lot of macro changes that are happening in today's what is data economy that we have today. And, and in all honesty, as you begin thinking about the data that we all base our businesses on, that data is being weaponized, if you will, daily, whether it be in our favor or against us. Are we actually working and researching and increasing the business value that we have through data? Or alternatively, is that data leaving our organizations in a way where it could be used against us as well? And there's some macro trends that are really amplifying the um, causation of this today. To, to begin with, as you talk about why this is happening, um, you know, we are seeing a revolving door that is occurring right now in the labor market as well. Uh, right now, 40 million employees in the U.S. quit their job, and that number has risen every year since 2010. And what that means is literally at any given point, 50% of the labor force is looking for a new job, according to Gallup polls that we have out there today. That means that this revolving door begins to put more and more of your data at risk. And at the same time too, what we've found is that employees today, while we give them mechanisms by which they are um, encouraged to use tools for their job, employees will continue to make choices that actually put that data at risk. What we actually found there was despite that uh, people you know, are looking at insider threat as well as thinking about how people share information, Rather than sticking to kind of company provided file sharing and collaboration tools, what we're finding is essentially one in three business decision makers are using social media platforms like Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn to actually share information. And 43% of them are using personal email to actually send files and collaborate with their colleagues, which means that this data portability side of it is also beginning to increase, if you will, um, the need for people to actually be, be paying attention to those mechanisms. And as you put it out there too, it's important to recognize on the final side of this, that the existing processes and the procedures that we have in place today failed to really stop that insider threat. What we actually found again was 69% of information security leaders say that kind of that data loss prevention that they're used to today cannot stop that insider threat from happening. And as you begin wrapping those things up, it begins to quantify how big of a problem that you have. Now, you brought up the departing employees scenario with obviously that revolving door. That's a really big challenge for organizations to solve. And what I loved, Sean, is asking organizations one very simple question, which is, do you have a process today to capture someone's laptop when they leave? Typically, the answer is yes. Do you have a process to capture someone's badge when they leave? And again, more often than not, the answer is yes. 
But then you ask them the question, simply put, is do you have a way in which to make sure that you collect all of their data when an employee leaves? And the answer there is a lot of whole hums and people looking at me, looking at me like a dog would look up at an alarm clock in the morning, right? With the, right? Um, that's a problem that they don't know how to solve. And I think that's really where things start coming together. Um, and just as you again talk about those departing employees today, what we've found in looking at Code 42 data is that departing employees have a tendency to actually take the information they're looking for to their next job before they resign from their current job. And in most processes to capture data today, what ends up happening is that a security team, after hearing about a resignation, will go ahead and start monitoring an employee for that data loss, leak, or theft, when in reality, the event where that data escapes your organization has already happened. It's before they turn in their resignation. So for us, it's important to begin to embrace tools that look at people from how are they interacting with the data that they have and how much data are they putting at risk at any given point. I'd like to, I'd like to ask a clarifying question here. How many of these, when you talk about employees leaving with data, how much of that do you believe is actually malicious and how much of it do you believe is simply because the employee feels some sense of ownership over whatever that data is, misguided or not? Yeah. Yeah, fantastic question. I mean, as you ask that, it, it's in most cases, it's not malicious that they're actually taking the data with them, right? At the end of it, it's malicious from the sense that the company does own that information and from that sense, it's malicious. But when we talk about the scope of insider threat, there are purposeful insiders that are doing, you know, breaches, if you will, that are, are very malicious, right? We saw um, at AT&T in this last year, just as an example, an insider um, was essentially bribed $1 million to unlock $2 million worth of phones, you know, and essentially hack the company that way. But when you think about departing employees leaving an organization, in today's world, employees feel as though part of what they create is owned by them. Um, and they are, are, believe that it's their right to kind of take that information from where they are today to the next role, because it's part of the, if you will, intellectual property that they've assumed um, as they've built that together. Now, simply put, legally, contractually, that's definitely not true, right? Especially as you begin starting to talk about things which I typically refer to as core intellectual property. Things, for example, like code as an example for engineers. That can be highly valuable um, to an organization where they might be leaving with some of the most crown jewels, prize jewels, if you will, um, that, that they created while at their, their former employer. The thing that I bring up here and something I just want to mention is that as we talk about these mechanisms and, you know, you talk about McAfee, for example, where um, insiders actually walked out the door with a lot of intellectual property on USB drives. It's not that sophisticated in, in terms of some of the mechanisms by which data leaves an organization. But the problem is, is it exists in the wild somewhere where it can be found, where it can be stolen. And there's no controls around that data at that point. So those, the, the information that is leaked becomes highly vulnerable um, just as time goes on and, and it's unmanaged. But legally, again, um, I think you have to consider it malicious in all cases because it was essentially a theft of information that belongs to the previous employer. Although in some cases, the employee, um, it's not malicious intent, if you will, from their side of the equation. And that problem gets a lot more difficult when you're dealing with the fact that you've got a lot of people who are mobile employees or maybe on their own devices, for example, or uh, are contractors who are, are short-term employees who are doing things with intellectual property that's potentially hazardous to corporate profits in the long term, but also uh, offers other security issues. Since you've got to share in a different way with people inside outside the company. How do you deal with that sort of a threat? Well, and, and by the way, you just brought up some great points in terms of how people look at employees, right? Um, you brought up things like contractors as an example. And in a lot of cases, people don't necessarily think about what is the information lifecycle process associated with contractors. They have a tendency to focus a lot more based upon the employees that exist within their organization. Um, and as you begin talking about some of the approaches by which people do that, one of the most important things that people can do is begin to think about what does an insider threat program look like, whether it be malicious or whether it be accidental, and ensure that they're getting the right level of, of controls as well as process and culture in place. And I'll tell you, I think that's what really begins to, as you begin thinking about that, is setting up 
um, the right culture is the very first step, right? How do you think about your employees? You know, if you have a big work from home culture, if you've got a big contractor culture, right? Make sure that you actually get insight into how those employees are working remotely and what access and what levels do you actually give them um, access to. But beyond culture, the second thing we always talk about is transparency, right? Um, making sure that employees don't feel threatened by the program, but rather make sure that they're aware that a program exists, right? Um, the more that you aren't honest with your employees and the more that your program actually hides what's happening behind the scenes to them, the more likely they are to revolt away from it, if you will, or not embrace it, right? Convey that you're passionate about the data that they create and that you want to create it, right? Share the information with your employees and bring along uh, those employees with that transparency. The third side of this as we talk about creating that culture as well as the insider threat program is really executive support around it. Making sure that you talk about the importance of um, the data that an organization creates. And then there's fundamentals, right? And, and you know, I, I love the conversation we had before about intent versus malicious versus just, you know, it's, it's, it's their right. Fundamentals and the controls that are in place still need to be in place, right? Um, the things like making sure you do the background checks, um, making sure that training and awareness is there. And it's part of the entire process, not just for employees, but the contractors that you bring around as well. Building policy about acceptable data use and acknowledging, uh, automating the acknowledgement of that policy um, so that users are, are required to see that. Um, and then at the end of this, just like you said as well, is with the number of vectors that organizations are, are faced with right now for collaboration and the fact that in a data economy, it's so important we enable our users without putting blocks in their way. And what I mean by that is they have to have the freedom to collaborate and communicate at the speed at which business needs to operate without those walls being put up. But at the same time, you need to be conscious of all of those different vectors um, by which information can flow and, and watch them independently as well. When you begin to take all of the aggregate of information, if you will, that data corpus that um, someone begins to uh, interact with, and you take that corpus of information and begin to analyze it for changes. For example, if all of a sudden, and, and maybe um, just as we, we jump back, if you will, to um, some of the um, McAfee as an example, um, the finance and sales ops teams were the actual culprits in that particular case where information was leaving. And if we see things, for example, where employees are, are downloading files that they shouldn't have access to, finance people, for example, all of a sudden touching um, source code or alternatively, right, like CSVs showing up on salespeople's laptops, which is more indicative of a download that might be happening of contact information. Um, you can begin to not only spot alerts that you need to take action upon, but you can begin to spot trends. Um, and those models that we're looking at today in terms of machine learning and artificial intelligence can begin to see trends around those, what I call macro sources of change, right? Which are, what are those lead indicators that are showing things that are happening in weird ways? But literally the, da the data biometrics that you can create um, to begin to understand how users are interacting can begin to spot change um, before the data is taken or alternatively, as you begin identifying a departing employee, these tools like ours can go back in time and be able to see did they take data before they actually turned in their resignation um, and then take action upon that as well. How do you pick up on behaviors that say somebody may have been doing all along that may be not necessarily malicious at the time, but maybe exposing data and or maybe trickling data out slowly over time and something they've been doing all along. Uh, if you come in and start with a new system to try and catch behavior that deviates. Yeah. So as you, as you begin to go down this path, I think um, one of the things I want to um, maybe uh, draw attention to is it was funny in our report. What we found was that um, over three quarters, you know, 78 percent to be exact of CISOs and 65 percent of CEOs admitted to clicking on a link that they shouldn't have, showing that no level of employee is actually kind of immune as we begin going down this process. And I bring that up only because 
In a lot of cases, um, it starts with the accidental insider, right? And as opposed to it being something that is, to your point, what I would call a trickle behavior, it's an event, right? And in, in a lot of cases, um, tools can identify an event of bad behavior. It is an alert that fires. It's a binary thing as opposed to something that a, a data model needs to be looking at or analyzing over time. Um, as you begin kind of beginning thinking about that landscape, Today, it's impossible for you to um, pay attention to all of that data. And that's where, you know, all of the alerting technologies, all of the capabilities that come around with that analysis come into play in such a positive way. Um, you ask again about machine learning and artificial intelligence. Um, there's no simple way to represent a user's behavior anymore and how data is meant to flow, right? Information right. information is no longer information, as we used to think about data flows of the past. Um, and just like I was referring to before, those macro indicators of change begin to um, enable those models to be incredibly successful um, in terms of how do they analyze risk and how do they spot risk sooner so that people can take action upon that too. So Sean brought up the cloud, which, which is obviously incredibly important in this context. And I'd like to ask about another very popular buzzword that's sort of sweeping the IT nation at this point. Um, from an insider threat perspective, is the push out from the data center to the edge an inflammatory thing? I mean, one person's edge computing is another person's shadow IT department. You know, it all depends on how official <laughs> the push out is. I mean, are there specific controls you'd recommend for countering the threat at the edge as that threat, uh, I guess, grows? Yeah, well, I mean, it, you know, to your point, as data begins to move, we're, we're definitely seeing traditional file servers um, melt away to more collaborative approaches that exist for, you know, file sync and share and, and other activities along those lines. Um, you know, here's, here's what I would actually recommend, to be honest with you, is that as you think about, um, you know, the way in which your employees want to work, more often than not, they want a lot of tools that allow them to collaborate better, to um, interact more uh, effectively. And what that means is, is naturally, be sure you're embracing the cloud, right? Don't fight it. Um, the organizations that are fighting the cloud are ultimately going to be fighting their users. And, um, you know, if you've learned one thing about the law of governing dynamics over time is that if more people are trying to break down a wall than defend it, the wall eventually comes down, right? So you, you need to pay attention to what your users want. And, and to your point, I mean, getting data to the cloud, get, pushing data to the edge um, is something that users are asking for. And for what it's worth, we've definitely seen a trend where if you don't embrace it, great, they're going to use their personal drop boxes and do things along those lines to get around it. And then you're infinitely more at risk than you are if you, you, you begin to embrace controls around it. How much of an impact do you think uh, GDPR and the recent California re legislation will have in terms of how companies have to relook at their policies as far as tracking insider threats go, not just in terms of exfiltration of data, but internal misuse of data as well? I think it's already, this, the, the sweeping legislation that's out there has already caused us to think differently about data privacy. Um, but as we talk about insider threat again, and we talk about contact information, and we talk about PII that's embedded in many of our sales records that we have you know, in an organization, an extraction of that information becomes something that organizations need to pay attention to because it does risk PII or PHI being leaked out into the real world in a way in which it can't be controlled. Um, so the responsible organizations, they've already embraced data privacy. Um, organizations that are looking at data privacy are embracing it as part of data protection. Um, and I think as we begin taking a look at the insider threat, more often than not, um, that's where the, the tools and technologies will allow you to be able to pay better attention to data privacy through that data protection lens. Yeah, just sort of a wrap-up question. Looking forward, what do you see right now as an emerging area where companies need to focus attention on the potential vulnerability of their data and to bring it back to AI once again, how does AI play a role in fixing that and as far as you see going forward in the future? As you begin talking about the next generation of technologies, which really is the current generation of technologies around artificial intelligence and things along those lines, those are only going to serve to amplify 
the signal through the noise, uh, as we begin to watch the way in which users um, you know, interact as opposed to dictate it, we're giving users freedom and it's necessary for us to understand how they're utilizing that freedom and ensuring that they're, not, they're using it in positive ways and not being the accidental insider threat too, right? Where someone is being uh, clicking on a bad link or any of those other behaviors. And that's where the deep learning technologies are going to be able to provide us a huge value in that amplification, identifying what users need to be watched, um, what behaviors need to be curved, or um, alternatively educate um, uh, end users around risky behaviors that they could be faced with. Um, all of those come together to, to solve this insider threat program um, and all the technologies that we have uh, are ultimately what's going to enable it. I will tell you this, I wish that there was a switch on the wall where I could flip it and turn off the darkness. Uh, but the reality is right now, we're going to be continuing to face a new set of challenges every day. Um, and only through great technology, great education, great culture, can organizations make sure that they're kept out of the limelight for uh, bad media that's coming out. Rob, I really appreciate your time on this today. Uh, Rob Junker is Senior Vice President of Product at Code42. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. This has been great. To get a sense of how AI-related technologies are being brought to play to stop insider threats now, we spoke with Justin Fear, the Director for Cyber Intelligence and Analysis at Darktrace. Here's what he had to say about detecting insider threats. All right, and now uh, we are joined by Justin Fear, who is Darktrace's Director of Cybersecurity. Thanks for joining us, Justin. Thank you. I want to discuss, since we've been talking about insider threats, some of the particulars around AI and insider threats to sort of tie all of this together. So to start with here, what can AI and machine learning do sort of in general, to detect potential insider threat behavior. And I know that's really broad, but we can maybe start there and drill down a little bit. Yeah, and I don't think it's as broad as a lot of the listeners might think. Um, you know, machine learning, I think, is perfectly suited for insider threat just simply because, you know, anomaly detection, in my opinion, is the best route to detect it. Um, an insider is always going to deviate from their standard pattern of life. They're always gonna change what they do, you know, in order to accomplish their mission. Um, and machine learning is just perfectly suited for that. That actually builds off of something that uh, we heard from Kathleen Carley when we spoke to her earlier. She mentioned the same thing, that when insiders begin to engage in, in you know, potentially troubling behavior, that they withdraw a little bit from normal associations or they, they change patterns. And generally, it's a withdrawal kind of behavior. Does that, that mirror what you guys typically see? Yeah, I think, I think that's one of many. Um, you know, I think the other thing uh, to think about is oftentimes insiders have kind of guilty knowledge about how the internal infrastructure works. Um, so they sometimes know how to attempt to evade detection. So even those attempts in evading detection are a deviation from their standard day-to-day -day work. Um, you know, so I think, you know, in, in, in many of the cases that we've seen, um, it could be something as simple as just browsing a file share that you've never browsed before, all the way up to, you know, trying to send out larger amounts of data than you typically would in your typical job function. Now, this sounds a teeny bit like you know, the minority report style pre-crime reporting, um, which, you know, potentially could squick some people out. So I have to then build on this question by asking, how do you deal with separating the proverbial wheat from the proverbial chaff here? Sure, sure. And, and, and that's funny, you know, you hear the term false positive a lot in our industry. Um, I think it's an antiquated term. It typically, in my opinion, refers to the more legacy approach to security, which is rules and signatures, which I think we all understand does not apply to insider threat. There is no rule or signature for an insider threat. Um, really, in anomaly detection, a good model doesn't generate false positives, it generates positive positives. You know, if it fires, it actually is an anomalous activity on the network. And we see that all the time. Now, was it just somebody, you know, that deviated from their standard pattern because they had to work late one night, you know, or, you know, had to send out a large file? 
or was it actually malicious? That's the difference, um, you know, and that's up to the security team to ultimately decide after the model fires. So I think you've sort of answered the second main question I had here in my list, which is that, you know, with the growth of legitimate businesses using the um, more and more cloud sharing, uh, you know, having more and more data flowing potentially off the LAN and out into the, into the internet, and the ability to conceal a great deal of data exfiltration within encrypted web traffic, how do you distinguish legitimate behavior from sort of furtive or malicious behavior? Yeah, so, you know, first and foremost, you know, everything I hope is encrypted in today's day and age. Um, and for dark traces sake, we don't really care if it's encrypted. You know, we're a metadata shop. Um, I can still show anomalies without breaking into the payload. I think the important thing that many corporations need to start considering is getting those corporate policies in place. And unfortunately, it still hasn't happened. It's the Wild West. I go into a lot of clients and there is no policy on what's acceptable cloud usage. And business units fire up SaaS applications and various different cloud storage applications without ever notifying security. A simple solution would be sign up for one, make it the appropriate policy, and then use machine learning and other tools to police that and verify you know, what's outside of the approved use. Um, I think the other thing a lot of folks don't realize is the laws governing um, you know, this use. For instance, if an employee fires up a, their own private cloud storage and there is no policy about doing so, I think the question arises oftentimes of, after that data moves into that private cloud storage, who owns the data? I think some would argue that it's the employees now because the company didn't take those actions to actually set what's right and wrong for doing that. Um, I think a good lawyer could certainly litigate that and get the data back. But in some cases, the minute that data goes to your private cloud storage, uh, you are now the owner of it. And I don't think uh, many corporations consider that enough. So you had mentioned policies, and I know that we have had in the past a pretty significant discussion around the role of technology and hard enforcement versus the role of policy and, and human enforcement. When you're looking at mitigating insider threats, is there sort of, from your perspective, a preferred balance between taking a technological approach with, uh, you know, system policies, GPOs or whatever, uh, versus a rules-based human approach with organizational policies and and soft rules, I guess. Is there a good mix between those? Because you can't do everything with either, right? Right. And I think it's a 50-50 mix. I think you really have to address both of them. Um, you know, I think the biggest shortcoming that I see in a lot of corporations, and it really is the lowest hanging fruit, is just integrate more with your human resources department. Um, you know, we've all taken, uh, you know, certified ethical hacker, and we know the number one answer to what is an insider threat is disgruntled employee. Well, you know, uh, HR should be able to tell you that, you know, they're supposed to know the employees better than anybody. And I just don't see enough HR departments integrating with the security team in order to identify these people, either before they become a risk or after they've already become a risk. And you also have, and I'd like to point this out also and have you address it, when we're discussing insider threats, that's a very malicious and pointy sounding thing, but it's not necessarily always a purposeful kind of kind of thing. You know, you, no one sets out, or people don't always set out to be an insider threat. And I guess the the canonical example is the, uh, and I ran into this, which will show you like the age that I am and, and when I was last working in IT, um, when uh, modern smartphones began to get really, really big, like shortly after the iPhone came out and shortly after Android made its first appearance, we ran into a lot of instances at companies I was at where the executives would show up with these brand new smartphones or the, the CIO would show up or the CEO would show up and be like, make my iPhone work with your email now which leads to a tremendous amount of integration issues and unanswered um, security questions, right? So how do you address insider threats that come potentially not from the bottom up, from line employees, but from the top down, as it were? One thing that we've started doing with a lot of our clients that I really enjoy and, and I find fascinating is building insider threat hunt teams. You know, we've all heard of the, you know, cyber hunt teams, but, you know, an insider threat hunt team is a little bit different. It's like, as you mentioned, it's the technology and the human psychology element as well. And one thing that we've implemented, instead of only looking at the high risk users, 
We also look at the high value users, you know, so your entire C-suite, your executives. And so, for instance, within Darktrace, a lot of those, uh, you know, uh, insider threat hunt teams will go in and tag those high value targets and they'll watch them a little bit closer. Not because, you know, necessarily they're, you know, being a nuisance and, and you know, accessing things on devices that are not approved, but also because they are higher value targets and they typically tend to get spearfished more and they tend to get targeted more as when they're traveling, et cetera. And so I think just taking the opposite approach of looking for the uh, disgruntled employee also uh, has worked quite a bit in our customers, you know, focus on those high value targets and just, you know, look at them with a little bit of a thicker magnifying glass. So kind of building on that, how can AI play a role in helping both, um, I guess, on the on the hunt team side and also with helping employees learn compliance with policies that prevent accidental insider exposure? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've got the whole, and, and it's been written about for years, the unintentional versus the intentional insider. Um, you know, and, and, and again, I'll sound like a broken record, it comes back to anomaly detection. So if I've baselined the entire network and I have a sense of what self is, you know, I will be able to identify a you know, finance business unit, for instance, firing up a SaaS application, sending out gigabytes and gigabytes worth of data. Now, it might have not have been intentional insider threat, but unintentionally, they're adding risk to uh, the business by not vetting it with security, by not verifying that those channels that the data is leaving are secure, making sure regula uh, regulations are being followed and they're not breaking any regulatory laws. Um, and so it all comes back to that visibility paired with that anomaly detection, you know. And I think a good baseline, a good set of models um, will make even the tiniest deviation uh, light up like a Christmas tree. You know, you mentioned my favorite word, risk, because um, risk has a very special meaning if you're a CIO or a CTO or, and an infosec. You know, risk doesn't, it, it has a very specific industry meaning. When you are coming in to discuss with companies about Darktrace and, and going in and setting up your baseline or whatever, do you have a lot of discussions in terms of risk specifically? Um, not necessarily in the first discussions. It's usually after we get the box deployed and, uh, you know, during our proof of value, a company gets to see all these many blind spots, whether it's all of the IoT they didn't know was on the network, you know, or all of the different cloud applications they didn't know was on the network. That's usually the big eye opener. And that's when, you know, the discussions start being had. Well, man, we need to start having some policy discussions, you know, about these things. Um, you know, as I said before, I think visibility paired with the anomaly detection is hard to beat, you know. And unfortunately, even in 2020, we still lack a lot of that visibility into our network. You know, I, it's sad to say, but many of our customers are still blind to almost 25% of their network. And that's all the non-standard traditional, you know, IoT devices that are out there. And we haven't even begun to think about what 5G is going to do to that. So... I was wondering if you could sort of maybe walk me through what, hypothetically, what a company might see when they first begin to do an assessment like this and set up a baseline. So can you give me a couple of examples of the types of behaviors and threats and risks that insiders might exhibit that companies might not be aware of that you guys spot when you come in and spin up your solution? Yeah, there's dozens. Um, so I'll, I'll pick a couple of the more interesting ones, you know. So it typically takes us anywhere from seven to nine days to baseline. After that seventh day, we've got enough data that the math can start to kick in and, and pop up some of the unusual activity. Now, we've seen a lot of cases of Raspberry Pis uh, being inserted into the network for malicious reasons. Um, now, I have nothing bad to say about the Raspberry Pi organization. I've got dozens of them around my own home, and they're a yeah, client of ours. <laughs> um, but we're seeing them in the ceiling tiles, under the floorboards, um, really doing creative, you know, uh, here's a nerd reference for you, Mr. Robot type attacks, um, you know, within the corporate uh, environment. So um, I'm blown away by some of the things I continue to see just with those devices. Um, and, you know, part of that is because it's a $5 device that I can buy locally. Um, you know, we're also seeing, you know, a lot, as we've already talked about, you know, in, in this talk of just 
cloud exfiltration, you know, but I've seen some more interesting cases where, you know, people have tried to exfil data out through, you know, the Apple instant message program by, you know, creating their own account on the other end and sending file attachments. Um, and to most security teams, it doesn't look anything more than encrypted, you know, iChat, you know, uh, communications. But when you start looking at it from a metadata perspective, you start to see uh, an increase in packet size. You start to see uh, a steady pattern of life. And so we were able to detect, you know, uh, pretty quickly that someone was actually sending out files at a pretty steady pace. Um, and then there's the just standard practice Person goes into HR, gives two weeks notice, walks right back to their desk and fires up an EC2 node or a DigitalOcean node and just starts exfiltrating data out of the network. And again, despite the fact that it's 2020, many corporations still lack the ability to spot gigabytes and gigabytes of data leaving the network uh, just because our networks are so complex today that it's hard to differentiate you know, uh, that little needle in the haystack. And building on that, uh, and this is sort of a broad question, but do the sort of insider threaty style trends you guys see at the micro level when you go into companies, are you seeing this sort of echoed perhaps at the macro level across industries um, and across countries? You know, I, I don't think we've seen that yet. You know, unfortunately, we're writing up dozens and dozens of insider threat cases per day. Um, I have not yet seen where one industry is more dominant over another industry. Um, the unfortunate case is if you just look back at the last few years of, you know, the publicly documented insider threat cases, it covers everything from the media industry to, you know, leaking, you know, uh, up and coming TV shows uh, to the financial industry. If you look at the Capital One breach, um, I think every industry is victim and will fall victim to this. You know, I think it's just it's one of those target of opportunity, uh, you know, sort of events. All right. Well, thank you for taking the time, Justin. This has been Justin Fear, Director of Cyber Intelligence for Darktrace. Uh, thanks a lot, Justin. Thank you. So AI may help in identifying signs of someone acting irregularly, but whether or not it can reach the level of a precog, like in Minority Report, recognizing pre-crime is open to debate. For now, it still requires humans to get that sort of insight into another human's intents. But next time we'll talk about another area of artificial intelligence research that is growing ever closer to reality, adversarial AI. I hope you'll join us. Once again, this episode was sponsored by Darktrace, the world's leader in AI cyber defense. With more than 3,000 organizations relying on its AI technology around the globe, Darktrace is transforming security from the inside out. Start your 30-day free trial by visiting darktrace.com slash trial.